Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I want to start with a question, actually a question my guest asked and I want to ask her about, which is, why is it that there are so much written about leadership, but most of us seem to feel that leadership is lacking in our work lives and in our societies? And in fact, if you look at some of the trust indicators that we've seen over the last many years, trust couldn't be at a lower level in terms of our leadership. Let's hope that 2021 is going to bring a better view on that one. But I want to ask, what are we missing and what do we need to do about this state of affairs? And we're going to do this in a general format, but we're also going to do that in some very specific business ideas about looking forward and innovation. So my guest today is Margaret Hefferman. Dr. Margaret Heffernan has was originally produced programs for the BBC, and then she had the good wisdom to move to the U.S. to spearhead multimunicate multimedia communications for Intuit, the learning company, and Standard & Poor's. From there, she was chief executive of Information Corporation, then of Zine Zine Corporation, then ICAST Corporation, which was named a top 25 stream by streaming media company. And I should say she was also named as a top 100 CEO as well for that company. Now, since she's also authored six books, as if she hasn't done enough already, The third one, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril, is one of my all-time favorite business books. The Financial Times named it as the most important business book of the decade. A Bigger Prize, another book of hers, Why Competition Isn't Everything and How We Do Better, was awarded the Transmission Prize and has been described as, quote, meticulously researched, engagingly written, and universally relevant and hard to fault, end quote. Her TED Talks have been seen by over 12 million people, and in 2015, her TED Talk um, published Beyond Measure, The Big Impact for Small Changes, her most recent book, is Uncharted, How to Map the Future, and it's become a bestseller as well. Her website, if you want to know more, is www.mheffernan.com. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really lovely to be talking to you, Wanda. It's a pleasure. Um, Needless to say, I've been a fan for ages, so I'm even more thrilled to talk about this one. So let me ask you my opening question, which is you've created companies and led teams in large companies and written about leadership, as we just know from six books, and who knows how many other articles. Why did you start writing about leadership? What started your interest in our need to lead in a better way? Well, I really started writing about it because as somebody who'd run a number of organizations, I felt that very little that I read helped me. Um, I mean, I I recognized there were many, many occasions when really I thought I needed help. And I read books that, you know, just described a world um, that I didn't recognize at all. It was all very theoretical. It was rather abstract. It suggested that, you know, everybody walked in straight lines, um, that every day the sun shone. And I just, I found the whole thing 
deeply lacking in kind of brutal reality. And um, and so I just thought, well, I you know, most, you know, not all, but many, many business books are run by people who have not run businesses. And so I thought I'd see, well, it, uh, does that kind of firsthand experience make a difference? I'm sure you would say it does. I'm sure you believe in your books and make it, that it makes a difference. And I've always loved about your books, the kind of practical reality, something I aspire to as well. I think that matters for our leaders. So I want to start well, with I, I mean, sort of- I hope so. I like to think that, you know, the experience shines through. I think it, I mean, increasingly, I think um, it sort of made me ask kind of different, probably more difficult more probing questions as to why why we get leadership so badly wrong so much of the time. Um, and it's not it's definitely not for lack of books and it's definitely not for lack of investment. So I think this is quite a you know this is quite a big problem. So why do you think we get leadership wrong? Well I think there are two reasons really. I think the first is that um, it's it the subject in and of itself is subject to a giant attribution problem, which is you can have a company or you can have um, an individual leader who appears to be super successful, right? So the company has grown, the the customers love it, the people in it have grown, you know, market share has grown, and so on and so forth. But actually, it's extremely difficult to prove what caused that. Is it the CEO? Is it the CEO's team? Is it the CEO's team despite the CEO or because of the CEO? Is it because that actually the competitors that this, that this company faced were actually rather inadequate and hopeless? Um, is it, was it just luck? You know, was this a company that was in a business that just at that particular moment was doing what people particularly needed? Um, you know, is it any of the above? And so I think so I think there is a fundamental attribution problem with leadership, and people too easily duck the problem, and instead they say, "Well, it must have been the CEO." Well, I think that's deeply dubious. Or they say it must have been the leadership team. Or it must have been, you know, one thing. It's always one thing. And so I think it's just, I think it's a very, very hard problem um, to understand. And I think that many people, (coughs) excuse me, many people who write about it don't ask questions about cause and effect when questions have to be asked. So that's one reason why I think it's very difficult. Um, And I think it's also the the second reason is we have a kind of cultural narrative that is very much about soloists. um, And it's much easier to tell the story of the the great person who saved the day. And it's a much easier narrative. and, And it's very easy to fall into that trap. And I think it really is a trap. Because the one thing I know is that it is impossible to be successful alone. And when you see an organization doing something very clever or very smart or very effective, um, it's definitely down to much more than one person. So I think, you know, there's also a problem with leadership in the sense that it tries to simplify things that are inherently complex. 
One of the phenomena I see, and there's a tendency to attribute this more to the U.S., but I see it kind of everywhere in the world. We have the cult of the hero. Yeah. Sometimes it's the hero who knows more than everybody else, so the expert who can kind of solve this problem. Sometimes it's the cult of the visionary who can see around corners and into the future and sees exactly the strategy that's going to make a difference. And sometimes it's just the personality that's so charismatic, but there's this cult of we want this ideal hero to follow who will make everything great. Yeah. What that implies is we just keep looking for the one as opposed to what I think you're arguing, which is digging into the organization itself. Am I right? Yeah, that's spot on. Absolutely. Okay. So I think it's kind of infantile, to be honest. Okay. It's sort of, you know, it's kind of wanting the ideal dad or something or a fairy godmother or somebody. I mean, it's fundamentally childish to take something as complex as business and think that you can explain it all with, you know, individuals, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, we have um, the book industry that would like to tell the stories of the CEO and the great success. And here's the CEO to follow and, you know, legacy and all those things that add to the complexity of it. So how do we start to change that in our own organizations and everywhere we look so that we start to see the complexity of business and the complexity of leadership? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's so complex. It doesn't really matter where you start, I think. I mean, I think CEOs, many of the very best CEOs that I've known absolutely understand the problem they don't think when their business is successful that it's all them yeah they know that it's down to multiple factors and most of them will also credit luck Mm -hmm. so I think it certainly starts with a certain amount of humility I think it also requires that we understand that um that every that, that business and leadership these are not sciences and they aren't really subject to scientific scrutiny. You can't do an experiment, you know, with 100 businesses that are all identical and see which individual decision makes a difference. Every company is, is different. Every day is different. Every product is different. Every customer is different. So I think we have to get away from this attempt to find rules as um, Carl Stein is the, you know, the rules of physics and recognize that we're always going to be talking about something which is um, going to change, which is inherently complex. So there are patterns that may not repeat themselves, but where we can examine, you know, and look for principles which seem by and large to do better than others. But I think we have to keep a really wary lookout for the degree to which those things can keep changing because the world changes and because business operates in the world. And, you know, as an example, I would say that, um, you know, for many years, decades, actually, um, there was a pretty consistent belief across large organizations that assessing people and ranking people and getting rid of the bottom five to 10% and um, sort of training, developing and rewarding the top 10%, that this was a jolly good thing to do. And, you know, most of the Fortune 500 companies did it and many still do it to this day. 
And there is a kind of phony scientism about this that suggests, well, it's, you know, it's a Bayesian curve, therefore it has some kind of remorseless logic. Um, and yet, you know, GE itself very quietly re- having, pros- having loudly proselytized this process, very quietly retired it because when they finally examined the data, what they discovered is actually this very expensive rather punitive, really rather ugly process actually didn't make any difference to people's productivity or the productivity of the company as a whole at all. So I think whenever we come across these panaceas, do this because a great company does it, so it'll be great for everybody. I think we have to be very, very skeptical. And I think we have to be, you know, I think leadership as a capacity to think for oneself. I think of leaders as people who do think for themselves. And I think we need to be much more thoughtful about developing critical thinking and skepticism as opposed to hero worship. Well, you said a lot in that one, Margaret. Let me come back for a moment to this (laughs) whole notion. Um, And we write that one, and critical thinking. Um, I want to come back to the skepticism or the frustration with this assessment, the ranking, the bottom 5%, just training and developing the top 10%, like the rest of the 90 didn't matter at all and they don't need to be developed, always bugged me. And I watch people being ranked and know that there are so many flaws in that process. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And you think that you're doing a good job on the whole and, you know, show me, I would say, bah humbug. Um, one of my colleagues, Peter Wright, in fact, is fond of saying, if you would just take the number of hours that a, an average manager puts into just executing the performance management process, writing yeah. the reviews, attending the meetings, the calibration, communicating the messages, and multiply that times the number of employees they have in their organization and give me an average dollar figure for that hour of time, we are wasting hundreds of millions in every organization, if not more. And you have to say for what? Because nobody's ever happy with it, not even the top 10%. Right. So what do we do instead? Well, I think, I mean, it's it's interesting because my my friend, uh, Patty McCord, you know, is, is blistering mm-hmm. on this subject as to what a gigantic waste of time, effort, and money it is. And actually how deeply demotivating it is. I mean, in my book, I wrote A Bigger Prize. And I looked at this, you know, and you don't have to be a mathematical genius to realize that if the if on this curve, the big pressure is at the top and the bottom, then the best, safest place to be is in the big fat middle. In other words, if it incentivizes any kind of behavior, it incentivizes mediocrity. You know, just be deeply, deeply average and you'll probably be okay. So um, so what do we do about it? I think we have to, and I'm, I'm just always amazed. I find myself saying these things. We have to get accustomed to having much more trenchant, relevant, meaningful conversations with people face-to-face. Not a formula, not a tick box, not a nonsensical psychographic profile, a real heart-to-heart conversation about, you know, what's it like working here? What are you doing that's stupid? What are you doing you wish you weren't doing? What could you do more of? You know, what do you think what do you think your contribution is here? How can we do more for you and how can you do more for us? 
I mean, one of the most profoundly motivating um, management techniques, if you like, is to take an interest in people. And yet what we mostly have been doing is coming up with bureaucratic systems, some of them automated, which do exactly the opposite. They make everybody feel like they're just a widget. So I think we have to go back to basics and think that actually what um, management and leadership are, are real human arts. And we have to think carefully about how do we refine our artistic capability of working alongside and communicating with other human beings. This, you know, if it is a science at all, it is a social science. It is not engineering Mm -hmm. that if you want to get the very best from people, you have to care about them and let it show. Now, I am flabbergasted that I spend as much time as I do saying this to leaders who then look at me rather bashful and, and confused and admit that they don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to do it because they've never been encouraged to do it. And because they imagine that, well, if they got people in HR to measure everything, somehow the truth would emerge. And I'm stunned by the number of really very fine CEOs who have no understanding of the power that they have or the degree to which people don't tell them the truth because they want to please them. Or then they have very little understanding of how power changes the people around them and their behavior and how distant it keeps them from people who are really on the the coalface. So I think we have to think, you know, I think we need a very, very, very big rethink. I think our enchantment with scientific management has been, as they say, a bum steer. I think it has sent us in exactly the wrong direction for the world that we inhabit today. And, um, and I think we have to, as I said before, you know, start with a certain amount of humility and start thinking about, as leaders, how do we build organizations that are regenerative? In other words, they grow and develop people. They grow and develop customers. They grow and develop creativity. And that's sustainable. As opposed to what I think we mostly have developed, which is an extractive form of leadership. How much labor can I squeeze out of people with that, and how little can I get away with giving them in exchange? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't even finish the first part of what I wanted to say on your comments. And now I've got five more comments that I want to make Sorry. on this one. As a, No, it's an important conversation. It is a human art. Um, yeah, and I've always described it as the, it is the art of leadership. And I totally agree with you that we get so focused on pleasing the person that's above us, whether it's the CEO or just the immediate manager or the manager's manager for that matter. And those people totally lose sight of the power they have or the way in which people play to that power um, for good and for bad. I think this is just astonishing. And it's... um. I mean, it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently because I am just amazed by the number of people in CEO or top positions 
who are completely impervious to the power that they have, and as a consequence, completely impervious to how cut off they are from what's really happening, mm-hmm. and how completely uninterested they are in people further down the pyramid. So there's one problem, which is they don't understand that their their position, right. the power they've been given, changes the behavior of everybody around them. I think they also often don't recognize that their path to the top spot has often been about learning to be an excellent pleaser, that that's what got them there, and that then when they are there, they have to be someone completely different. And I, am, I remain shocked by the number of leaders I work with who, confronted by a very difficult problem, don't know what to do. Now, I don't, you know, these are really hard problems, so I don't criticize them at all for not knowing. But what I think is so astounding is one of two behaviors. One will be, well, I have to solve this all by myself. Mm-hmm. It would be shameful to ask for help. I think that's yes. terrible. You've got an organization full of smart people. What are you doing with them? So I'm surprised by the number of people who feel they can't ask for help. And I'm surprised by the number of people who don't understand that their company is indeed full of really smart people. And collectively, they could come up with some really great stuff. Um, So because they don't know that, they will turn to consultants who you would imagine and expect cannot possibly know their organization as well as they themselves should. So in other words, you're seeing a kind of failure to use the power that they have for the means for which it was given to them. In other words, to harness the creativity and intelligence of their people to do their job, not alone, but with all the clever people they've been smart enough to put around them. Yeah. The number of people that I interact with, and I'm going to point particularly as I'm coaching women and people, minorities, struggle, Mm. struggle with this fear that if they say I don't know how to do it or if I can't do it by myself, that somehow they are weak or not acceptable or going to get rejected. I mean, that's just appalling because that's a bad practice to begin with. So anyway, I'm totally, totally 100% with you. So the notion of recognizing, just to reiterate that, to recognizing that the position changes people's behaviors to you when you're in the top position, that your path to get to that top position means that you probably avoided a bunch of hard problems and you most definitely avoided conflict. So you become a pleaser in order to get there. And that now that you're in that top position, you have to recognize your power in a different way and use it for a different purpose, which Mm -hmm. I loved you said is harness the creativity and intelligence of the people that are around you. Now, we were talking before about about assessments and year-end performance reviews and rankings and all of that jazz. And you also slid another thing in that sentence that I want to go back to which is that we should be developing the skepticism and critical thinking of people. Mm. Okay. And uh, recently I've been writing about this and saying what we need is more perspective and less skill. 
Mm. is my language for it. But say more about what you think about why we need this critical thinking and skepticism and what does it look like to do it? Well, I think we need it because it's very difficult in a very complex environment, which is the environment in which all of us are working these days, um, to see the whole picture. I mean, the business environment is too complex for anybody to see everything that's acting on everything that's having an impact on your business. So you have to have multiple perspectives. There are all sorts of things that other people will notice that you won't. Um, You know, I mean, I can think of a conversation I had today with a number of ex-co-members who were having a particular difficulty and um, and they all thought it was one kind of problem. Well, most of them thought it was one kind of problem. And then one other person said, well, maybe it's actually this kind of problem. At which point, you know, the conversation got really interesting. And then they started thinking, actually, it was, it was a, not a single problem, although it might manifest as such, but it was a problem that had a lot of different facets to it. And therefore, doing one thing was not going to solve it. It was going to need quite a lot of things to address it. And that actually, you know, there was not going to be a silver bullet for this particular issue. And it was actually a really beautiful example of how when you have people with different perspectives and life experiences and expertise and so on, you can start to understand an issue or an opportunity really, really well in a way that alone you simply can't. And I think that, um, you know, when you see this working, and I would say this from my own experience, um, you know, I can remember on one occasion when we need to do a sort of restructure of, of the tech company I was running, and I got stuck in LA because of weather and I couldn't get back to Boston for the meeting. And I started trying, you know, to do a conference call and that just became impossible. And I just said to the team, look, you figure it out and we'll discuss it when I get back. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that what they came up with was infinitely better than anything in my mind at the time. I mean, it was more creative, it was more flexible, it was it preserved more of the good stuff, it got rid of more of the bad stuff. I mean, it was a fantastic experience for me as a young leader to discover that sometimes the most important thing you can do is call a meeting and then don't turn up. <laughs> and, um, and so I think, you know, I think the truth is that there are very few situations in which a single perspective will truly capture the truth about where you are at any one given point. I've talked with lots of leaders who say that the hardest transition for them, especially if you come up from within the organization, is that on one day you can have your own opinion and voice your opinion around the room like everybody else. It's no mm-hmm. big deal. And then suddenly you become the leader and your opinion, the moment you voice your opinion, other opinions are silenced. People stop speaking. I think it's the change in behavior because of the title that you have that you mentioned earlier. And so they you know, have to learn not to tip their hand in what they're thinking or what they're reacting to in order to get those perspectives from other people in the room. 
And yeah. for some, that's easy. For some, that's really difficult. But I, I love this advice. Call the meeting and don't turn up. Get stuck across the country where you can't get there and let the team have to figure it out for themselves. What a challenge. But, yeah. But it's interesting because I remember once having a, a um, mentoring client and who is an absolutely brilliant and really fine human being. Um, and he had huge amounts of energy, just incredible energy. And he kind of ate problems for breakfast, you know. And, um, and I remember saying to him once, you know, I think the next time you go to a meeting, just try something for me. Mm-hmm. Just promise yourself that you are not going to say a word. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me like, you know, this is some kind of torture. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, just see, just see what happens. And anyway, the next time I saw him, he, I, I said, okay, so did you do that? You know, or did you check it out? He said, no, no, I did it. I did it. And, um, and I said, so what did, you, what did you see? And he said, well, the first thing was clearly people look to me to have the answer because I usually do have the answer. Uh-huh. And then when they realized I didn't or I wasn't telling, then they started coming up with their own ideas of what the answers were. Uh-huh. And they were really great. Uh-huh. So what have you learned? He said, well, first of all, I realized that I don't need to go to all these meetings. That was a huge result for somebody who stayed late and came early every day. Um, and he said, I've also realized that some of their ideas were much better than mine, but they only came out because I kept quiet. And, you know, that was pretty much the moment at which I thought, right, my work here is done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I mean, he was, you know, he was an exceptionally thoughtful person who who really had no arrogance about him at all. He just had this kind of almost puppyish desire to solve problems. So he'd come, come bounding in and fix them. And and everybody else would sit there thinking, well, what am I here for? Right. Well, and then we get into the hero thing. He always knows. So let's ask him. He'll know. It's a completely, it's almost a learned helplessness, even though people wouldn't describe it as being helpless. All right. We're going to take a break. But before we do that, I have to ask on a, one more talk question, which is about hierarchical. I know this is something that the hierarchical models you've written about, been frustrated with, think that it's an old model What's wrong with our hierarchical thinking and where should we be looking instead? Well, I think um, we need to think about two things. One is the difference between complex versus complicated problems because I think they need different approaches. And um, and I think we tend to deal with all problems as either as if, as if they're functional problems, you know, an HR problem mm-hmm. or something or a finance problem or a tech problem when the truth is that most serious issues in organizations are multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we tend to think that, well, if we can come up with a, a one-shot solution that's super efficient, that'll do the trick. So I think we have to start understanding the difference between complicated and complex. I think we have to understand that in complex environments, um, efficiency isn't going to be our friend. And I also have to think, I also think we have to start 
thinking that when we really can't get our hands completely around a problem, we can start doing things, approaching the problem uh, in order to understand it better before we have to come up with the all-round 360-degree perfect solution. So I think we have to become more imaginative and more prepared to do experiments. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then how is it that the hierarchical structures, and I know everybody, everybody listening to it, all of my clients will say, oh, no, 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 we've got an inclusive collaborative culture to which I say, bah humbug, you still have a hierarchical because somebody still approves the budget and somebody still approves the ranking system and whatever. So why does, in your view, the hierarchy get in the way of this doing of experiments? Well, it gets in the way because people are afraid of um, coming up with something that isn't doesn't please the powerful person above them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, one of the big problems of hierarchy, however well-intended, is that they have this pleasing effect, um, which really constrains people's thinking. But the other thing I would say and I wrote about this in Uncharted, is, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence to show that to the degree that you give people freedom, they come up with much, much better um, ways of working. And that's not something you can figure out in abstract, and neither is it something you can simulate with a spreadsheet. It's something you have got to experiment with. And I don't think that if you just throw hierarchy out the window and say, well, let a thousand flowers bloom, that the complexity of the challenges we face will be fixed by doing that. But I do think that there are ways of, there are structures and ways of working together that release a lot more creativity and interestingly, accountability And people tend to think that those two things can't sit comfortably in the same sentence. But I think that people are much more prepared to take responsibility for decisions that they made, not to please others, but because they believed they were the right decisions. So I think that to the degree that we can find different ways of working that get rid of the hierarchy problem, increase creativity and accountability, then we're on to something. But I think that the consultant's uh, favorite trick, which is one size fits all, I don't think that's ever true. I think you have to be very thoughtful about how does this work with my team or my organization or my organization in this country or in this kind of industry. Because I think the detail and the nuance is fantastically powerful. Right. Um, Do you have a quick example of an experimentation that you think unleashed creativity and accountability and allowed for experimentation? Well, I mean, there are a whole bunch in my book, but I think one of them is this beautiful story of the Dutch um, home care nursing system which tended to be run as much um, of healthcare is on an industrial model so that you come up with, you know, a pattern. So you have an insurance contract, the insurance contract triggers care. The care is developed according to a schedule, which is very, very carefully priced 
for efficiency and profitability. And then you give that schedule to the healthcare workers and they have to work within those constraints. And then the patient, you hope, gets better. And then the invoicing happens and so on. This is a, a sort of assembly line concept of healthcare. Um, it dominates many, many healthcare systems yeah. around the world. It's phenomenally expensive to, um, to deliver. And in Holland, they looked at this and they thought there are two problems with it. One is it's super expensive. And the second is everybody hates it. The <laughs> nurses hate it. The doctors hate it. The patients hate it. And they had this very brilliant insight, which was actually the, this is not one problem. It's two problems. Um, and, and so there are two, because there are two kinds of work going on here. The first is, all of this kind of paperwork and bureaucracy and insurance and all that kind of stuff, that's all the same kind of stuff. It's complicated. It's not complex. There is no real ambiguity in it. That's fit for automation. And we should use technology to the hilt to streamline this stuff. But the difficulty with healthcare is that every patient is different. And you can have two patients leaving a hospital on the same day, having had the same procedure, whose recovery experience will be radically different. So this is complex. There are all sorts of other factors, you know, their mental state. Do they have friends at home, family at home who will look after them? Are they well off? Are they poor? Do they have good housing, good heating? Are they, you know, do they know how to cook for themselves? Is their nutrition good? Are they used to, I mean, just millions of differences between every single patient. And so they said, you know, you can't standardize this. You standardize it, you'll kill some of these patients. So let's take a team of nurses and say to them, these are the patients you're responsible for. You're qualified, skilled professionals. Do what's right. That's it. That's your job description. That's it. And the consequence of this experiment, which they did with 40 patients and 10 nurses, the consequence of the experiment was that the patients got better in half the time and the cost of nursing from beginning to end, the whole process fell by 30%. And you could look back on this and say, well, that's interesting. They took all the hierarchy away. But that's not why they did it, right? right. They did it because it was a miserable system. And they wanted to find different ways of doing it. And, of course, getting rid of the hierarchy just saved them a fortune. It strikes me, so we're coming back to this whole notion of thinking about the problems that you have in your organization, assuming you can't have all the perspectives that you need for those problems, because and separating them into classes. Some mm -hmm. are complicated and systematized and can be automated, and there's ways of streamlining that kind of in the classic sense that's going to be effective, and some of them are not going to work that way. And we separate out the classes of problems. First, we understand the nature of the problems we have, what it's really about, and then we separate them out. And then we devise experimental solutions for the ones where they're particularly complex. Mm. Is that a reasonable yeah. summary? A simplistic yeah. summary of what is a very complicated process. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. This is perfect moment for a break. So let's take a quick break. And with me today is Dr. Margaret Heffernan, 
The book that we're going to talk about in the next half is a brand new one called Uncharted, How to Map the Future. But as we can tell, we've been talking about Margaret's experience in running her own corporations, in advising CEOs and executive teams, and of her six books on the wisdom of how to think about leadership from a more practical, human-centered, artistic way of thinking. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Dr. Margaret Heffernan. And at this segment, we're going to talk about Uncharted, how to map the future. I think what strikes me in the last bit of conversation is both Margaret's wisdom in her own experiences of leading and of guiding leaders and mentoring leaders, but recognizing that there is no formulaic answer to all the problems that we've been facing and that we've got to take an approach that's both more artistic oriented, as well as more experimentally oriented with many different perspectives. That's summarizing a whole host of pieces of conversation where there's lots of bits of wisdom in there in one sentence. All right. So at this point, I want to talk about Uncharted. Um, And I'm going to start with this one with a quote that you, from you, a three word quote, which you said, we're addicted to prediction. Yeah. Tell me yeah. about that and tell me what's wrong with that. Sure. Well, you know, the, what I think of as a sort of three-legged stool of management is very much based on the idea that you forecast, then you plan, and then you execute. And, um, and what's very clear is that absent reliable forecasts, many, many people, many, many leaders, many, many ordinary people just flail about. You know, they simply can't cope. They think, I have to know what's going to happen Mm -hmm. before I can start to think about what to do. Mm -hmm. And this is a real business problem because the horizon for accurate forecasting 
is now, if you're really an outstanding, pretty much professional forecaster, maybe, excuse me, 400 days, and if like the rest of us, you know, you're pretty well informed, you're pretty thoughtful, but you're not obsessive, then it's closer to 150 days. So what that means is that most leaders are having to make conversations in the context of inadequate information. That's the real world. And if we need um, accurate prediction in order to think, then by the time we have all the data, it's too late. And so I think this is a really fundamental challenge to much about the way that we think about leadership. And, um, and I think our addiction to prediction acts is a real break on our capacity to imagine, to think discursively, um, really to explore the territory that we find ourselves in and see options and choices. And what I see many, many leaders do is wait for certainty, whereas in fact what they should do is search for options. Yeah, search for options and then explore those options until it's clear which one of them is going to be a better solution or something else comes up. Is that the general idea? Well, and also to start to think, okay, so if there are all of these different options, you know, which are the best for where we are at the moment? Which ones can we afford? Can we not afford? Which ones could we try on an experimental basis and see what we learn? But I think that what you can't do is what I see so many businesses doing, which is wait. Just wait. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because although, you know, sure, eventually you'll see other companies are doing something and you can copy that. But that deprives you of leadership and momentum and a sense of real agency, the capacity to influence events in your own organization. But I see this all the time. I see, you know, a lot of my clients, you know, the, the big question in their head is, What's everybody else doing? Yep. Tell me what everybody else is doing. Yep. Um, but the, you know, but true leadership, you know, really being in front is not waiting to see what everybody else is doing. And it's also not waiting for all the data to be in. It's saying, okay, in this situation with the information we have, I think this is our best bet. Now, how do we go down that road? you know, hopefully reducing some of our risk, but nevertheless continuing to make progress. Right. And, you know, a, a perfect example of this, I think, is the bloodbath that now, you know, is the retail industry. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've seen for, oh, what, 20 years now, the threat that online shopping posed to retail. And what have we seen in retail Uh, A lot of fear and trembling, a lot of reversion to very old strategies. Let's cut costs so there's no staff in the stores anymore. Uh, Let's cut prices so the clothes are shabbier than they've been before. Uh, And then let's compete with each other so that as companies start to go out of business, you know, the malls or the high streets or whatever become less and less desirable destinations. That's what we've seen. Let's wait and see what this online stuff really does. Well, look what the waiting and seeing has produced. Whereas you might have thought otherwise, look, 
this online stuff, it's what are its great advantages? It's to, you know, you can do tons of price comparison. Uh, it, you don't have to leave your house. It never closes. We can't compete with any of that stuff. What we have to do is be a truly exciting place to come where people get fabulous service and it's an experience in its own right. Let's try that. Let's see if it makes a difference. I can't think of a single retailer who's done that, except perhaps with the exception of Apple, who were wildly excoriated by the business press for doing so on the grounds that it was a stupid thing to do. And it's almost the only store I ever see full of people anymore. So you can't wait if you consider yourself a leader. You know, almost by definition, the clues in the words. If you're a leader, you're out in front. It's interesting about the retail industry. I remember reports more than a year ago, so almost 24 months ago, about what was going to happen to the retail and about the demise of the industry. I mean, the data were really clear that this is an industry that is not going to survive in its current state of affairs. And that was true without COVID happening. And all mm-hmm. COVID has done is just accelerate it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I think the clues are always there. We just refuse to listen to the clues. Or we wait for data to confirm what we want to hear as opposed to the data that are actually present. Well, yes, but I mean, you also have to say, you know, how much data do you need? It's true. And I think we've seen a lot of really kind of fearful non-leaders in top jobs, you know, waiting for the data to be incontrovertible. Well, by the time it's incontrovertible, you've you've absolutely lost the game. But I see this in, in many industries, which is, mm, well, we don't really want to take too much of a risk. But this is why they call it leadership. Everything else is management. There's a reason the two words aren't the same. And it's, you know, and I have a lot of respect for managers. I think they do an invaluable job. And I think many companies actually are very well run by managers. And very few companies actually have leaders. But if you want to be a leader, then you have to recognize that part of this is about making decisions before all the data is in. Okay. All right. Now, in that same vein, I think you're going to give me a similar answer, but I'm going to ask any rate because you said history doesn't repeat itself. Why is that important? Well, it's important for a whole host of reasons. Um, One is because people think it's true. So they think, well, if, you know, X looks like Y, then the same outcome will follow, which Mm -hmm. is just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that and, and you see this in politics a lot, you know, that there was a sort of belief, for example, at the beginning of the Vietnam War, that this was just like the Second World War because you had a kind of evil dictator who was trying to take over and, um, and therefore we had to stand up to it and not concede, in other words, not do a Munich. And Eisenhower talked about Vietnam in the context of Munich And obviously, Lyndon Johnson talked about it and Robert McNamara talked about it. And it's very, very clear that the parallels are completely spurious. And indeed, McNamara subsequently said in his very deep reflection after the fact, thinking it was history repeating itself was what stopped us seeing what in fact it was. 
And the truth is that the complexity of human events means that no two historical events are identical. That doesn't mean there aren't lessons in history, but to, you know the things that were the decisions we're making today, we have knowledge of history, which people in similar circumstances, say 20 years ago, did not have. So necessarily we are in a different place. And this belief that, well, you know, if you always did this, it, it always worked, it's never true. You have to look at what's the difference between now and then, not what's the same. Because if you look at what's the same, you will overrate continuity and underrate the differences, the discontinuity, which very often is where both the threat or the opportunities lie. So this is, again, about not just assuming we know how this is going to play out, what this is going to look like. I've seen it before and looking intentionally for what is different this time, because that's where we're going to find either the threat or, as you said, the opportunity. Yeah. And I mean, it's really interesting. You know, there was a very famous moment. I think it was it was probably 2005, but it might have been 2003 where, um, you know, uh, Michael Dell looked at Apple, uh, which at the time had 2.3% market share of the PC market, and, um, and had a whole series of quarters in which the stock price fell and earnings fell, and said, you know, with great conviction that really they should just shut up shop and give the money back to the shareholders because, you know, he'd seen lots of PC manufacturers decline and clearly Apple was just going to be another one of those. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't. And it wasn't not because um, it it was just a PC manufacturer and not just because, you know, Steve Jobs is, you know, so widely admired. It wasn't because Jobs had a single insight, which Dell didn't have, wasn't privy to, and neither, I think, was Microsoft, which was that actually you could turn an MP3 player into a computer. And in about 2005, when, you know, when the iPod, uh, when he was talking about the iPod, he said, you know, it's an interesting thought that it isn't just a hard disk storage device. It is actually a computer. So he had a different idea. He was in a different place and he took a different risk. Now, I'm always very suspicious of people who trot out Steve Jobs as an example of anything because he's very unusual um, and particularly unusual in his capacity to encourage and foment and benefit from conflict and argument and debate within his company. You know, I don't think that he, (laughs) the very funny story of somebody when he died, a child saying, well, who's going to make the iPods now, dad? Because there's always this vision that he did everything in the company. You know, among other things, Jobs was a great collaborator and very good at hiring people who could stand up to him. But I think the point of going back to history, the point is, that Jobs wasn't interested in how he compared with companies to the past. He was compared in what he was, what made him different about the future. And if we look to the past for consolation or confirmation, then we're disregarding and underweighting what new is happening that changes the game. Mm 
Fabulous. And I can remember, you know, when I was running a company in 2000, which really was a progenitor of YouTube five years too early, uh, talking to all of the senior executives um, uh, at, Dis at Disney um, about how sooner or later all movies and TV shows, shows and music would be online. Right. You know, and they said, well, that's just never happened and it's never going to happen. You know, because it's never happened, it never will happen. Thank you so much. My guest today, Dr. Margaret Heffernan. The book we've just been talking about is Charted, How to Map the Future. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Thank you.